Hello, welcome to Tales from the Aubrey, a podcast by the Scranton Public Library. My name is Alyssa, and I work in the reference department of the Aubrey Memorial Library. Our guest today is Anne. Hi. Similar to last week, we are taking a look at one of the mugshots that we have in our collection under the Scranton Department of Public Safety. It is a true crime story about a fraudulent psychic named Claire Mitchell, who was caught in Scranton on March 21st of 1903. The first thing I wanted to do was explain a bit about why psychics were so popular in the early 1900s and the rise of spiritualism, which heavily influenced the movement. Do you have any thoughts? I'm starting to think, is this when the Fox sisters also were very big? And they were from the uh, New York area, I believe? Yes, they were from Hydesville, New York. And I actually start out with them because they are the ones that are credited with starting the entire movement. So after the Civil War, people began to seek out psychics to connect them with loved ones. They often wanted information about the safety or where their loved ones were if they were still alive. But if they had known that their loved one had died during a battle or just in the course of the Civil War, they wanted to try and contact them in the afterlife for closure because it was one of the first times in American history where people's bodies weren't being transported back home. That's true, yes, especially with battles. Now you said that a psychic, the person could still be alive and the family would hire a psychic to bind them? Yes. Really? So they would go to a person claiming to be a psychic or medium and be like, where are they? And the psychic or medium would be like, I see them in the woods. And so they would do those kinds of things. Okay. Well, that's interesting. I did not know that. I knew, like, with the passing, but never that someone is still alive. Yeah. It, mm. I mean, they didn't really have reliable True. communication. Yes. Right. Exactly. Because <clears throat> even by the time death notices and that got around, it, it was weeks, be. months. Depending on where they were, right. the records could have been destroyed. That's, if they yes, were. exactly. In 1848, the Fox sisters, who you mentioned, Mm -hmm. began in Hydesville, New York, and they claimed that they had psychic powers and communicate through noises with spirits. Later in life, they admitted that their powers were a hoax, but they had already reached fame and popularity around the entire country and the world, essentially. Yes, they did. I, I do remember reading about them. I think after the one sister died, the other sister was like, no, it was 100% real. Okay. So they really flip-flopped. Back and forth on that. Yes. Yes. Depending on what the mood and culture was. True. Yes. Yes. And were they in, they did not, when they passed, they weren't, lived in poverty too, didn't they, I believe? Yes. They had lost everything that they had gained. I feel like it was, their manager was kind of. (gasps) Like embezzled. Embezzled. Okay. (laughs) All right. Unfortunately. (laughs) It happens all the time. Yes. The Fox sisters are often credited with issuing in the spiritualist religion, which believed in an immediate afterlife that could be reached using psychics and mediums. It is important because people see proof of their beliefs during the seances. The popularity of the movement also had its critics. The best known was Harry Houdini, who made it a point to expose fraudulent mediums and psychics. He would use his knowledge of trickery and illusion to prove that those claiming to contact the dead were fakes and frauds. Oh, wow. Yes. This became his passion. Um, To debunk? Yes. Okay. I believe it was because he had tried to contact his mother through mediums before. Okay. And 
he very quickly realized that they were not actually speaking to his mom. Okay. And that made him angry. Okay. So he made it his personal mission to, to expose everyone. Okay, because they, they, they ask right questions. Yes. Near the early 1900s, spiritualism developed into communities claiming to contact spirits to answer questions. This style became very popular in immigrant communities, which Scranton was due to the large coal mining. That's true. Yes, yes. yes. The contact and information could be obtained through methods such as palm reading, crystal ball gazing, astrology, mm-hmm. and more. All that would be required from the person seeking answers was payment to the psychic or clairvoyant. And this is kind of where Clear Mitchell fits in. Oh, okay. Now, when you say the immigrant community, did you find anything in your research that it was one nationality that believed more than others? Or would you say it was across the board? It kind of was across the board okay. from what I could tell. Okay. Um, specifically, I got that information from an article on Atlas Obscura about New York City. Oh, okay. All right. Um, so I'm pretty sure it kind of was across the board. Okay. And that's a very good book, by the way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So Clear Mitchell, in his mugshot, he is wearing a black winter coat with a white shirt underneath. On the back of the cart, it states that he is 26 years old with dark hair and brown eyes. It is also interesting to note that his place of birth is listed as Mid-Ocean coming from England. The Scranton Department of Public Safety marked down his real name as being Harry Wheat, and he was arrested for being a clairvoyant and fortune teller. A Scranton Republican article would call him dapper and exceedingly smooth individual, and noted at the time of his arrest that he had only been in the city for three weeks. Wow, I didn't realize he was that young, 26. Yes. Wow, okay. Yes, and by that time, I believe, I go over it later, but right. he had already lived in multiple states, okay. multiple cities. Um, I forget which one's offhand at okay. the moment, but I know it's in here. Operating out of 213 Linden Street in Scranton, which is currently the location of a parking garage, Claire Mitchell marketed his psychic abilities as having contributed to uniting 162 separated, brought around 227 marriages, gained the love of certain ones to number 426, located ones to the number of 426, located two treasures, located 27 absent ones, and overcame 698 rivals. Wow, he was very busy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> very busy. I, I don't know if you have time for all of that. I don't effort. either, but the two treasures. Hmm, you did. interesting. <laughs> yeah, Angel Hell is just like as fun. Just two treasures. Just two. Yeah. <laughs> no names of the treasures, where they were found. That There's just two of them. Yep. <laughs> when people went to see Mitchell, he would instruct them to bring $100 or as much as possible for their next visit. He would then place the money in a cloth bag while saying an incantation. The person would be instructed to wear the bag close to their body at all times. Never look in the bag and never share the contents of the bag with anyone else. If the person returned after this, he would place money in an envelope before placing it in the bag. One person who was attracted to these claims was W.L. Cleese. Please did go visit him, and he followed these instructions for a few days before he became curious. And then he looked in the bag. And what was in there? Um, No money. I was going to say no money, just paper (laughs) maybe? Yeah, paper. (laughs) Clear Mitchell would use damp paper in replace of money, so it still had that, like, weight in it. Oh, wow. Okay. so, Cleo went to the police. Yes, I would think <laughs> so. You would. Yes. When he went to the police, 
Cleese said that he had an appointment for the next day with Mitchell, so the police agreed to go along with him posing as clients. Oh. So at 1 p.m. the next day, Superintendent Lona B. Day and Detective Robert Dieter went to Mitchell's residence. Clee had the previous time slot, so they booked one for, I believe it was 1.30. I think he did them in half-hour increments. Okay, all right. So Clee was there when they arrived, and the detectives walked in. They spoke to Mitchell, but they thought that Mitchell was the assistant. So that gave Clear Mitchell time to escape from the apartment. Clee pointed out their mistake, and the detectives chased after him. Mitchell then ran up Linden Street before turning the corner onto Franklin Ave. Dieter was following him close behind, and Day went up Raymond Court to try and cut him off from the other side. Once Mitchell reached Franklin Ave, however, a fireman named Lewis Cohen got in his way. Mitchell then threatened to shoot Cohen if he did not move. So Cohen obviously moved Moved, out of the way. But by this time, Mitchell felt he was delayed enough that he then turned around and tried to run back to Linden Street. But Detective Dieter was there. At this point, Mitchell ran into the street before threatening the officers with his gun that he had concealed on his person. The officers also had their guns drawn and fired warning shots at him. And eventually, they caught him on Page Court, and Mitchell would throw his gun over the fence, and then oh. it was later found that it was loaded, and he definitely would have actually shot them. Wow. Yeah, so a whole police chase was yes. laid out in the newspaper. Wow. In detail. Yes, they loved details back then. And can we just go back for one second? How did, they, how did yes. he figure out they were detectives? I imagine they were wearing uniforms. Oh, they probably okay. Were. Do you think they were just probably? Okay. All right, because I'm thinking, boy, maybe he was psychic. Yeah. <laughs> um, also, during the investigation, it was revealed that Mitchell was wanted in a number of other locations, including Tyrone, PA, Wilkes-Barre, oh, wow. Bridgeport, Connecticut, Cleveland, Ohio, Baltimore, Maryland, New York, New York, and over 50 other cities. So he could probably also spot the detectives. I, he from probably yes. Away. He knew. He knew. Yes. <laughs> he knew that then it was time to get out, out of, town. of town. And he probably knew what people he could con and which ones he probably could not. Yes. Mm-hmm. And then his list of aliases included John Hazel, Frank Hamilton, Harry Leroy, and Professor Hazel. Chief of Police Healthy from Plainfield, New Jersey, stated that Mitchell was the most daring swindler in the United States. He can convince a skeptic that black is white. In our city, he got $700. It represented the life savings of one of his victims. Wow. So he really... He knew, yes. He knew he had a spree. Yes. Um, $700 back then was a lot of money. Yes, I didn't get the conversion for that one, but it's... That's, yes, very much so. (laughs) So now I'm going to go on to how Mitchell actually ran the entire scheme because the newspaper also goes very in detail about that as well. To gain potential clients' trust, Mitchell would prove his skills by having them fill out cards with their name and their question. He provided instructions to them stating that they should not ask questions where they already knew the answers. So that covers him there. Okay, yes. Because he can kind of just make up anything he wants. His assistant would then sneak a glance at the cards and pass a message to Mitchell using a side door while the clients were walking through the main hallway to the private room. Once they entered the room with Mitchell, he would greet them by name and seem to know their question through psychic abilities. Really? Yes. Oh, wow. 
Then the actual defrauding of people was discovered when the police searched his apartment after he was arrested. They found sealed envelopes containing damp paper, which he would use in place of the money, money, a box full of cartridges, and a bag of red pepper flakes. And what so, were the red pepper flakes for? According to the Scranton Republican, okay. the only use the police could assign to the red pepper flakes is that if he could not get the money in any other way, he would throw the pepper into the person's eyes. <laughs> and then oh, he would just take it while they were just take the money blinded. while they were blind. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh. And then the cartridges were obviously for the gun that yes, they exactly. off of him. So very clever. Very, very clever. <laughs> I really do want to know the true reason for the red pepper flakes. Yes, I do, too. true. <laughs> yes, because that just threw me, like, red pepper flakes? Yeah. So, who knows? Who knows? While it seemed that Claire Mitchell was headed to the county jail or prison, this turned out to not be true. Numerous escape attempts were planned by the acquaintances he knew throughout the city. It is believed that a group of criminals convinced a lawyer to pose as Mitchell's attorney to pass him an encoded message. Once it was delivered, he was to wait for a coded response, then he would pass that to the criminals, who would use their methods to break Mitchell out of jail soon after. The lawyer would then be instructed to read a newspaper for an hour or two and appear nonchalant to avoid detection. That plan did not pan out and it didn't happen. Okay. But I feel like it's interesting. It's very interesting. Everything. Yeah. How many acquaintances did he have in this city? He wasn't here that long. I mean, probably more than we would think now because of but, all of the trains and transportation between yes. yep. major cities. And maybe where they hung out. You don't, yeah. They don't say where he hung out. So, But how did they get the lawyer to do it? I believe they were just going to kind of bribe him. Oh, okay. All right. Or have somebody pose as him. Okay. Um, the plan that does seem to have worked was providing James J. Nealis with access to a bank account to be used for bail money. On Tuesday, March 24th, 1903, a motion was filed by Nealis to have Mitchell's bail reduced to $1,500, and that was granted by Judge Edwards. This was paid instantly, and Mitchell was released from custody. We do have the reaction from the police. Okay. Reporters from the Scranton Republican were talking with Superintendent Day when he was told that Mitchell was freed. Day instantly got up and ran to the courthouse to try and stop Mitchell from leaving it. But when he got there, Mitchell had already left. When Day realized that he had missed him, he halted the 3.35 p.m. train to New York City to search for him. So he just ran up and down the train cars trying to find him. Could not find him at all. By this time, Mitchell had already disappeared. The article on the incident reported that there was no manner man in the city of Scranton, and he hasn't recovered from his wrath yet and won't until Mitchell is located. Wow. So Superintendent Day was livid. I can imagine. He was extra mad because he had suspected that something would like this would happen. So he had written to the district attorney's office so he would be notified if any new arrest warrants for Mitchell came through or if he did try to have something where his bail was reduced so he could put a stop to it because Mitchell was wanted in so many different places. The district attorney's office, however, said that they didn't know Mitchell was trying to get released and that it was the sheriff's office fault that this escape had happened. This was reported as far as the Philadelphia Inquirer. Oh, wow. Who reported on the argument in Mitchell's escape. 
wanted ads were placed in many newspapers across the country and specifically in the East Coast to explain who Mitchell was and what to do if somebody sees him. Wow. So even with all the efforts to recapture Clear Mitchell, he was never found. He was indicted by a grand jury for his crimes in May of 1903, but never appeared to any of the court dates. It seems that for the short time, the name Clear Mitchell also kind of became slang in the area to mean psychic. Really? (laughs) In an article regarding the re-election of H.C. Butler and Jeremiah Clune to the poor board, it stated, Collector Jones asked the treasurer if he was a mind reader. The latter denied being a Clear Mitchell. So from this point on, I was not able to find any references to Clear Mitchell in any newspaper that we have access to at the library. So it's unknown if he was ever recaptured or what happened to him after he left Scranton. Oh, man. It's possible that he just started going by another alias. Yes. He could have went west. Oh, man. He just disappeared. Oh, (laughs) that is really cool, though. I like that. I enjoy how detailed all of the newspaper articles are. Yes, went. yes, very detailed. It's, it's amazing they didn't say what color clothing the people were wearing while right. they were yeah. arresting him in that. Yeah. Oh, I would just love to know what happened to him, though. I know. <sighs> it's one of the mysteries that yes. we have here. But if you do know <laughs> where Claire Mitchell is or what happened to him or have any clues whatsoever... Um, you can feel free to email us or call the library because we're just curious now. (laughs) Yes, we are. We're curious very much. And I would love to know what his, more of his background was, like what got him started to be basically a con man. Yeah, I would like to know. And I would like to know if the story of him being born halfway between oceans. Yes, it's true. Halfway between the countries. is true. Yeah. Yes. Yep, that's I would love to know more about his background and basically what happened to him. Yeah, because it sounds like something he might have made up. Yes. Being like, I have these mythical powers because... I was born in the sea. Yeah. In the middle (laughs) of the ocean. Very interesting. Yeah, Yeah, very, very. (laughs) This is where we'll end our episode for today. Since it is October, I thought it'd be fun to collect and share some staff ghost stories. So that will be our episode for next week. In the meantime, if you have any questions, comments, suggestions, or anything at all, including where Clear Mitchell might have ended up, please contact me at a l o n e y at albright.org. That is a l o n e at albright.org. You can also call the library at 570-348-3000. Thank you. Thank you.